0: Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through
1: education, advocacy, and research.
2: Hello and welcome. My name is Chad Kruger, and I'm going to be the host of today's AUKUS Amplified podcast. Today, we will be discussing some of the advocacy efforts that AUKUS has undertaken on our behalf. And I am with an esteemed group of colleagues. I'm going to let them introduce themselves now. Hello, I'm Mike Bolognese from Durham, North Carolina, Duke University Medical Center.
1: And I am Hutch Huddleston from Stanford University. Hi, everyone. This is Roshan Shaw
0: from Columbia University in New York City. Hi, everyone. This is Adam Rana. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Portland, Maine. Thank you all for those introductions. Dr. Bolognese, I'm gonna start with you. So
2: why is AUKUS even involved in advocacy efforts? What is our history there and, and why have we determined this as
3: such a priority for our group? Thanks, Chad, for the question. It's a relevant one for this podcast. And for those that don't know the history of AUKUS, there's some history that's very relevant. In 1990, there were members from the hip society and the knee society that basically were appointed to a steering committee to develop the group that eventually became AUKUS. It's a long list of people, you know, whose names should be familiar to you. uh, J. Philip Nelson, Dick Johnston, Larry Dore, Dr. Ranawat, Jim Rand, even later through development, folks like Merrill Ritter, David Hungerford, and Dr. Welch from the Hip Society. All these folks came together to sort of start AUKUS. And really one of the key core missions was advocacy. And because what they were trying to do was to create a group for the hip and knee surgeon that maybe uh, wasn't necessarily a part of the knee society or hip society, but had relevant clinical issues, obviously uh, interest in education, put real issues around practice that needed them at that point in time, you know, to develop an entity that could be the advocacy voice for
2: its members. So I think that's a great history that we can all kind of build off of. And I know a lot of us on this call have been involved in advocacy for a significant period of time. And I was curious, you know, Dr. Huddleston, how did you become interested in advocacy? And why did you choose to put your efforts forward for AUKUS on this behalf?
1: So I first started to get interested in advocacy approximately eight or nine years ago. And at this point, I've been in practice for nearly 15 years. And I have a typical university-based, academic, hip and knee referral practice. And once you get a mature practice doing things daily, the sort of nuts and bolts of your practice comes a little bit easier than it did to start with. So you have some more bandwidth to think about sort of bigger picture issues. And as somebody who was being referred joint replacements that had failed, and many of them prematurely, I really became acutely aware of the many opportunities for improvement In the delivery of healthcare specifically, the delivery of care for osteoarthritis in the hip and knee, whether it's uh, non-operative treatment or operative treatment, I was faced day in and day out with seeing patients in certain spots where they didn't necessarily need to be there. And as a single surgeon, you can work tirelessly and take care of one patient at a time, and you will invariably make a big imprint on folks' lives, and that's tremendous. But in terms of trying to improve the value of the care that we deliver and do the right thing for our patients and preserve their access, but also preserve our own livelihoods, it became very apparent to me that one could be much more influential, specifically with regard to the delivery system, by getting involved on a more national level specifically to advocate for the needs of our practices and our patients.
2: I think that's an important point. And I know, Dr. Shaw, you may not have been in practice for 15 years yet, but how did you become interested as well? Because this is something you certainly picked up on early.
4: Yeah, Chad, thanks for the question. You know, I think advocacy is a major responsibility and one that I take very seriously. It's just like Dr. Huddleton said, it's a way to contribute meaningfully to a greater number of patients than what we do, you know, than the excellent work we do with our own practices. For me personally, advocacy started early. I had an early internship on Capitol Hill with my congressman and and saw firsthand the impact that various groups can have in shaping policies and in a way that really protects patients because really it's easy to get distracted by the messaging from the real purpose of why we are advocates as doctors and, and here through AUKUS, and it's for the patients. It's different from their direct patient advocacy. For example, if you're arguing with an insurance company or an anesthesiologist about why an old sicker patient needs a hip fracture fixed, this is more advocacy to legislators and politicians and allows for the continuation of funding for research, for example, access to patient care and, and really our own livelihoods, just like we've all mentioned so far. There's an old saying that I'm sure you've heard if you're not sitting at the table, then you're probably on the menu for dinner. And unless orthopedic surgeons and hip and knee surgeons address this responsibility that we all share,
2: we won't be able to continue to do what we do for our patients. Thanks, Dr. Shah. And Dr. Renner, what about you? I know you're on the younger side as well. How did you become interested
0: in advocacy? Thank you, Chad. So I've been uh, very fortunate to have exceptional mentors during the course of my training, both in residency and fellowship. And even before I started uh, medicine, I was interested in not only biology, but uh, economics. And I did economic consulting for a couple of years before going into training in medical school and residency. And during residency, I paired some of my interests in economics with uh, arthroplasty. I was fortunate to have Dr. Iorio was a a mentor of mine while I was at the uh, Lahey Clinic when he was back there and was involved in a number of projects looking at value-based care and really kind of honed and developed an interest for, we're dealt with a limited amount of resources in terms of healthcare dollars. And it's important for the preservation of our specialty to use it wisely and to generate value. And from residency during my fellowship, Dr. Aorio had suggested be a healthcare policy fellowship through AUKUS. And that really gave me the opportunity to meet various senior leaders within the AUKUS association. And those leaders really became mentors and have become friends and colleagues that I look forward to interacting with and meeting, not just at meetings, but on legislative r- retreats. But it's been a great experience for me for the pathway of my experience, my journey through AUKUS, dealing with some of the health policy issues, namely value-based care. And when I went through my healthcare care policy fellowship, it was back in 2012-13 when we were involved in a, a white paper for the uh, acute care episode, the ACE Project. And I was involved in writing uh, the white or assisting with the white paper from that project. And, you know, if we think back to those early days of the ACE project and then it became BPCI and then CJR alternative payment models have evolved considerably over the course of the past 10 years and seeing that transformation and seeing AUKUS's involvement in Um, how alternative payment models are impacting our membership has really been very valuable from my end. Thanks. And I think, you know, everyone kind of touched on that to a degree, but
2: some of the issues that everyone has personally that, that relate to our efforts in advocacy. And I know AUKUS has been working hard specifically on some more acute issues recently. And Dr. Huddleston, I was hoping you could speak on some of those, specifically the inpatient only changes that have happened in that regard. And then maybe Dr. Bolognese, you could follow him in in discussing about some of the misvalued codes and some of our work done on that behalf.
1: So having knee replacement come off of the inpatient only list, which happened several years ago at this point, is a topic that we have focused our advocacy efforts on now quite a bit. Most people are familiar with it. And our concerns initially were that if you're going to incentivize hospitals to have patients go home from the hospital, either the day of the operation or the day after, that we're not quite sure that that's a safe thing to do. When I first started as an intern, the patients were staying in the hospital between five and seven days. That was pretty common. And now the average length of stay for a Medicare patient in the United States is approximately three days. So we're constantly whittling it down, but at some point there's going to be a safety issue. And so we had concerns without having any real specific guidelines to follow as to who would be safe going home. And so on top of that, you also have the social issues that may present and prevent folks from being able to safely go home. You know, the 90-year-old female who has a hip replacement and has to walk up five flights of stairs in New York City to her apartment probably isn't going to be able to go home on post-op day zero or one. So that was really the basis of our concerns. And unfortunately, it essentially fell on deaf ears. I'm proud to report that we haven't really seen a wave of complications from people being discharged prematurely but we're still struggling with it, and there's still lots of confusion. This doesn't affect the reimbursement for the surgeon. It's primarily a patient and a hospital issue, but our our job was really to advocate for the patients, uh, because as you know, if patients are not staying in the hospital, they will get a go-day, and if they stayed 23 hours in the hospital and they're getting bills as an outpatient, even though they had a hospital gown on, that creates further confusion. So Unfortunately, our advocacy efforts related to this to either get an exemption or not even be part of the inpatient only rule never came to fruition. And we knew that hip replacement would come shortly after knee replacement. And our stance was that we did not think that total hip arthroplasty should come off the inpatient only list until we sorted through the issues with knee replacements. And unfortunately, CMS chose to take it off of uh, the list really without Our support, and that happened on January 1st, 2020. So these are ongoing issues, and uh, we're going to have a call with CMMI tomorrow to discuss the bundled payment programs. And uh, one of the things that we are going to advocate for is to have a site neutral payment. And this is particularly important in the times of COVID because we know there are going to be certain areas in the country that have high numbers of COVID patients. And doing joint replacements in that setting is going to be challenging. And uh, given the demand for joint replacement on all the patients who are suffering at home, as soon as it's safe from a public health perspective to get these patients back in the system and allowing us to operate is a very important thing and certainly something our patients want amongst many stakeholders as well. So I think that we need to be prepared to do more patients in the outpatient setting, especially in those hot spots where there are more COVID patients. And having one payment, regardless of whether it's an inpatient or an outpatient, will be very helpful to help us get rid of this backlog of patients that we've had to cancel when uh, we elected to cancel all elective surgery back in mid-March. So that's sort of where we are now. We will see what CMMI and CMS has to say. But we think this makes great sense in the current pandemic, and uh, it would be great if we could... Uh, get them to have a site neutral payment. So we'll wait and see where we end up with that.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great summary. I know a lot of folks and and a lot of institutions have struggled trying to figure out what the rules are in regards to inpatient only, and that's created a lot of confusion among surgeons, patients, and hospitals alike. So thanks for bringing that up and talking to CMMI again on our behalf. And then Dr. Bolognese, I know AUKUS has worked a lot on some of the misvalued codes and had a lot of discussions
3: regarding those as well. Would you be able to sum up some of those for us? Yeah, so I think the misvalued code sort of story, if you will, is a great example of how your efforts in an association can give you an education because a little bit like Hutch alluded to when he talked about his interest in advocacy, is you start thinking about your practice and all the factors around your practice. It's interesting how far you can be into practice before you completely understand how something like, say, the value assigned to a CPT code for a procedure you do is actually developed and created or assigned. And not to go too far off the rails here, but basically AUKUS has more than once, but of course recently made great efforts to, I'd say, protect the value of our codes for our primary procedures, hip and the arthroplasty, because um, like any CPT code, they've come under review before for evaluation of the value that's assigned and consideration of change in value through the RUC process. Some of the process and where it's at currently are still things we can't disclose out of respect to the RUC process. But I think what, what I'd summarize is, is say that AUKUS, and not just our members that are involved at the committee level, but also our consultants and our staff have put in so much work, really hard to summarize how much work's been put in in an effort to make the argument that our codes are appropriately valued. You know, we think they shouldn't necessarily be changed. And we think we've done a great job to demonstrate and prove in an evidence-based fashion that, that the work that uh, they're assigned for is really being done and we're still doing it. And our thoughts is it shouldn't change. And this is something, you know, I, I tell you, when I first joined August, I didn't even realize there was a process to support your cause in this situation and, and honestly didn't even really understand the entire RUC process. I, I have to admit, I've become intimately familiar with it now. But I'm very proud of the work predominantly done by Hutch and, and his committee on uh, addressing this and really trying to protect our members in this space because it's really remarkable what's been done. It's an ongoing thing. It'll, it'll probably be something we take on again in the future and continually take on if you want to characterize it that way. But members should know the amount of work being done this is really impressive. I would also, sorry to interrupt you, Chad. Hutch, anything to add on that? Certainly appreciate it anytime we talk about something like this, he should get a say.
1: Thanks, Bolo. I'll just echo what Bolo said on a couple points, and he gave a very nice summary. This has certainly been a focus of ours for the last 24 months or so, but this process is not something that you can easily get information about, and the institutional knowledge that AUKUS has acquired over the years that has been passed down has been something that the current group of leaders really has benefited from. And I really think that this was a whole team effort from our lobbyists to the leadership, to the boots on the ground, really sort of taking the temperature of the environment and figuring out the best way to make our case that we're continuing to improve the value of the care that we deliver. And we should not be penalized for that. And it wouldn't be possible without the strength of August and the leaders still being engaged uh, and passing the information down. So I too am very proud of our efforts. And when you're putting a lot of time into something, it's great to enjoy it and to continue the good work that's
2: been done previously. Well, I think everyone on our membership certainly appreciates all your efforts on these behalfs. They're issues that are near and dear to all of us. So thank you for that. And we certainly look forward to hearing more. And Dr. Shaw, what are your thoughts on these topics?
4: Chad, you know, I think that the members who are listening to this right now,
2: I agree with you. They certainly appreciate all
4: the work that Dr. Bolognese and and Dr. Huddleston have done already, uh, as well as the teams. I think this is a good opportunity to talk about what we can all do as members and as researchers and just surgeons of the community of hip and knee surgeons. Dr. Huddleston mentioned that it's really hard to get data on a lot of the discrete variables we need to convince the appropriate players that the work we're doing is valuable. And so our research efforts, every single publication that, that any of us are putting out there should reflect a really honest assessment of the amount of work and veer away from the tendency to say that, for example, surgery is getting faster or easier or it takes minimizing a real assessment of how much work actually goes into what we do day in and day out. And that includes the middle of the night phone calls or, you know, missing family games. I mean, the amount of time that we all spend thinking about our patients is work and it needs to be allotted
2: for in in how we describe what we do to the larger community. I think that's well said. All these little points are very important when it comes to the larger discussion. It's something I think we've all become a bit more aware of and really gives us a stronger stance when we try to have these in-depth conversations. And, you know, kind of along the lines of of things that we've done, we've kind of been forced into this COVID world over the past couple months. I don't think it was anything that we were expecting, but we're certainly working on our members' behalf in this regard, too. Dr. Huddleston, I know you've written something that's coming out in the Journal of Arthroplasty Supplements in the near future. Would you mind commenting on some of the work that AUKUS is doing on its membership behalf in regards to COVID? Sure. So this has definitely been um, a
1: focus of ours for uh, the last six weeks or so. And for those of us who do elective surgery who have had a little bit more time at their disposal, it's been a good time for us to focus on this and uh, really figure out the best way to advocate for our members. So just to take a step back, today is April 15th, traditionally tax day. I believe this is the first time in the history of our country that tax day has been pushed back to July 15th on the federal level, both for filing as well as paying. And I think all but three of the states have said they will push back their deadline as well. So that gives you an idea of how big a deal this is. And just to go through the numbers worldwide, 2 million COVID-19 cases, over 100,000 deaths. The United States has close to 600,000 cases and 25,000 deaths, most of those coming in the last three weeks. So, this is not something that any of us have ever been prepared for. And I, I don't need to say that this is a generational event that is going to change fundamentally how we run our lives. But with that being said, and unemployment numbers since the beginning of March coming in at now 17 million new people filing for unemployment, Congress has acted swiftly and boldly in this space in a bipartisan fashion, which is really to their credit. So I won't get into too many of the details, but the first relief package came on March 5th, and that was called the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act. And it was also known as the Coronavirus Supplement, and it was $8.3 billion. And it essentially gave the federal government money to deal with the crisis on a worldwide perspective. It gave the Department of Health and Human Services money to focus on the development of vaccines and test kits. And then it gave money to states for PPE and for ramping up testing efforts. So that happened immediately and before many of the shelter-in-place orders went down. And as most people know, Approximately 97% of all Americans are currently under a shelter-in-place order, and that's continuing until April 30th. So that was the first stimulus package, uh, which was well-received. Shortly thereafter, they passed the second package. The president signed it the same day on March 18th, and this was the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, or FFCRA. And essentially what this did was afforded uh, individuals with sick and emergency leave. It created tax credits for affected employers, expanded food and nutrition services, and gave states and, and territories emergency unemployment grants. And it's not quite clear how much this is going to cost, but it's estimated to be between 180 and $350 billion once all the benefits have been realized. And so this extension of paid sick leave really is important and applied to businesses with fewer than 500 employees. And exceptions can be made by the Secretary of Labor for small businesses with less than 50 employees. But another important point to the Families First Act was that it really covered costs both for public and private payers for testing of coronavirus. And one of the things we're advocating now is for treatment of coronavirus to be covered for everybody regardless of what their insurance status is. So that was another big step in the right direction. There's more to hear uh, about that in the future. The third stimulus package is the one that's garnering the most attention, and understandably because it is the largest economic bill in the history of the United States at $2.2 trillion. So CARES is Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Securities Act. And uh, there are several important provisions here. The one that is most important, perhaps, is the Paycheck Protection Program. And that's essentially providing 100% forgivable loans to small businesses so that they can basically keep their employees on the payroll. Other provisions, including suspension of the planned 2% Medicare cuts, a refundable tax credit for social security tax, a payroll tax deferral, uh, suspension of principal and interest payments on federal student loans. And perhaps most relevant to us was $100 billion that was earmarked. Towards the healthcare industry. Once we saw that, we really kicked into high gear and uh, we sent a letter to the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, Eric Hargan, on March 31st, specifically about this $100 billion that was in the CARES Act. And as you'd expect, we were concerned that we wanted to make sure physicians and our members were adequately represented so that we had some relief and uh, our letter was followed up with a request by Mr. Hargan's staff for us to speak with him in person, which we did on April 7th. And basically what he said is, look, you guys as physicians are indeed going to get $30 billion worth of direct aid. And during the president's daily coronavirus task force briefing, Seema Verma, the administrator of CMS, will be talking to give you some more of the details. So that happened later in the day. And there's no question that uh, the meeting that we had with the deputy secretary at the end of January, which, interestingly enough, was delayed a few minutes because he was in an emergency coronavirus meeting, helped us to be on his radar for this. And we also, on the legislative slide, had a letter that was championed by Brad Wenstrup, who's a podiatrist from Ohio and 14 other members of the so-called Congressional Doc Caucus, had sent a message to Alec Azar basically saying, look, these joint replacement surgeons have stopped elective surgery. They're uh, contributing to the prevention of transmission of coronavirus, they need some relief as their patients do. So we're pleased that we're getting some direct relief. This is going to be rolled out in several different tranches. The first one is based purely on your 2019 Medicare fee reimbursements, and it roughly represents one month or approximately 8% of your billings for, or I should say, reimbursements for 2019. So we know that's not enough, but that's certainly helping. And uh, there's no question that our advocacy efforts over the last few years put us in a position to have some impact here. So we're uh, uh, very proud of that. Another part of CARES was this Medicare Accelerated and Advanced Payment Program. And this is the uh, other important part with relevance to office members. And essentially, this is a loan or upfront payment equal to 100% of their Medicare payments for a three-month period. So that's going to help keep some people afloat. We are arguing for the repayment date to be not 120 days that they've proposed, but rather to push it out to December 31st, 2021, and allowing some loan forgiveness for rural providers and the like who are in tremendous financial distress and trying to keep their their practice afloat, So that's a great part of the act, but we do need some tweaking to that. So we've been working very closely with the AAOS Office of Government Relations. The current Academy President Joe Bosco is an office member, and we're completely synergized on all these issues. And where we are now is that, as you probably have heard, there's a fourth stimulus package that's being debated. And we recently signed on to a letter that AAOS had championed that went out to Mitch McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate, and the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And we asked for some clarification of the accelerated advance payment program, as I just touched on. Senator Barrasso has a program in place to uh, benefit rural providers and those practices that are most at risk of closing. And we're certainly supportive of that and hope to see that in this fourth stimulus package. And we're also advocating for uh, expansion of the Paycheck Protection Program. Some of our members are involved in practices that have more than 500 members, and they're not currently eligible for that. So we're working to make sure that they are eligible. And last but not least, we're certainly pushing for expansion of the language to expand Good Samaritan coverage for folks under the CARES Act who are not necessarily working in their subspecialty and have been so-called redeployed for other fronts. So we have continued our standard advocacy issues that we have informed our membership about for the last few years. And these new COVID issues are moving quickly, but we are working tirelessly on them. The ACA staff, as well as the academy staff, is working 24-7 on this. And hopefully we will have some good news to report when they announce the four stimulus package.
2: Thank you for that. I'm glad you have an article coming out so I can reference something. I certainly wasn't taking notes fast enough to keep up with everything that you mentioned. But I think that really speaks to the, how important it is to have everyone involved. I mean, you talked about Dr. Bosco, and he's in New York. And Dr. Shaw, you're in New York now as well. Obviously, that's kind of a hot spot here in the U.S. I'd love to hear a personal account of how our advocacy efforts are, are helping you and how your roles changed some with what COVID has done to your practice.
4: Sure, Chad, absolutely. New York City, unfortunately, is the epicenter. Ever since March first, when York had its first uh, positive case, we have been seeing a dramatic increase in the number of patients. And you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm with Columbia University and New York Presbyterian. New York Prez has a large footprint in the New York metropolitan area and so far has been taking care of 70 or 80% of the COVID positive patients in the area. So we have had a tremendous drain on our resources. Needless to say, early on, we stopped elective surgery in my department and reassigned roles to almost everyone in the group. We have been, speaking as a member, we have been wonderful beneficiaries of the, the work that's been done advocating for orthopedic surgeons and really all of healthcare in Washington, D.C. The most clear benefit will be the one-month Medicare billings. I mean, that's going to help keep us afloat. Going from full speed, like everybody's practice, full speed to screeching to a complete halt has led to a, a financial situation that's concerning, but our leadership has decided happily not to furlough or let go of anybody in our staff. And so to do that, we've had to think creatively about finances, to be honest. And so the actual direct financial help helps tremendously. AUKUS has also helped with our responsibility to teach. I'm a fellowship director for our program, and the new online education curriculum is just phenomenal. I've been able to sit in on at least one of those. I'm sure, Chad, you're participating in those as well. I think that's really a wonderful way to fill some of our needs. The redeployment that Dr. Adelson mentioned is happening, and when I speak to colleagues from around the country, I think that's one of the uh, first questions they ask. We have been deployed to the emergency rooms as extensions and as ancillary support to the emergency room doctors and the ICU doctors. Once the patient comes in, and is uh, admitted for oxygen or, or intubated, they then are waiting, like everywhere waiting for a bed upstairs. But there's a long period of time before a bed is available, just given the constraints. You know, To give you uh, an indication, we have about 2,500 patients COVID positive around all of the NOAP hospitals, and about 700 are, are intubated right now happily, we still have a little bit of room to go before we are completely overwhelmed, but it still takes time for the patients to go upstairs. And so in that interval, they desperately need capable physicians to uh, help manage the patients in between when the ER docs have managed them and, and are now moving on to the next patient and when the upstairs inpatient hospitalist or ICU team can take over. And that's where we come into place by really everything you can imagine. Everything you remember, I should say, from intern years is happening now. NG tubes, femoral lines. I don't think any of us have had to intubate or put in a central line yet, but really anything we can do helps. And for a department that's been embattled, the ER docs, you know, they've been just absolutely crushed with the amount of work, mental anguish, and stress, seeing other departments come in has helped a lot. So the idea that we can all be a part of the same team has been a a real nice uh, feature of this. Initially, everybody's read about our issues with PPE and ventilators, and, and those needs are starting to be filled. One thing I haven't seen a whole lot of out there are real dearth in renal dialysis capacity. Patients are unfortunately being you know, they're just not getting renal dialysis. And, and that's one of the ways they're dying these days. So, I mean, I could I could go on and on. It's it's a dire picture. The news is covering most of it, but I would just say uh, on the ground, it's better because of the advocacy efforts and patients are being helped.
2: Thank you for that. Certainly, I appreciate all the work you're doing up there in, in New York on our behalf. And it sounds like a tough situation and appreciate all your efforts. I think you spoke to some of what Dr. Huddleston's touched on as well and how important it is to have these previous relationships in, in place. When something like this comes up, it gives us a better avenue to you know, take care of ourselves and, and help our patients more efficiently to make sure that we have what we need to take care of them. And from a, a larger standpoint, Dr. Bolognese, obviously COVID was thrusted upon us, but how does AUKUS in general really decide what issues should we tackle from a legislative standpoint? Obviously, we're all hardworking individuals. We only have 24 hours in a day, no matter how much we try to stretch it. And the issues are seemingly never ending at times. So how do we kind of go about really deciding what we should go after?
3: I think it goes back sort of to the history of AUKUS and this core arm or value or leg of the association focusing on the practice and the health of the practice. And so, of course, things that you can't predict come along like COVID, as we've discussed, But I think what we always want to make sure we're doing is advocating to recognize the value of what we do day to day, caring for patients with hip and knee arthritis, and also making sure that the care that's delivered, that value of the care that's delivered is recognized. And that's being a little bit sort of general, but that's usually what takes us to the key concepts or the key issues, because sure, you can say you're advocating for access to the patient's reimbursement, support of the practice, and certainly fairness to our docs in this field as it pertains to the rest of the house of medicine. And I think that's sort of where we go. It involves some, but if you think like you heard Hutch say, some of these topics recur just from the nature of the health system we're in. So making sure we value and do everything we can to demonstrate the value for our codes. We've been through that before and we may go through it again. So we're fortunate that AUKUS has become, I guess you could say, effective enough that we have an excellent, excellent consulting group that we work with on the Hillside, as well as our staffers like Josh Kerr and others that help us make sure we're aware of the issues. And some of them we embrace because of it's in line with things like AOS is doing. So it's multifactorial and evolving, but there's always going to be those key concepts.
2: Thanks for that. And I know, Dr. Rennett, you did the Health Policy Fellowship uh, a few years ago, and you talked about how you really started getting involved in 2011 or so. You've certainly seen that kind of repeating pattern of how things have grown. Can you talk about your experiences in terms of deciding these legislative standpoints that we should focus on, and kind of how you take what you see in your daily practice and then translate that into uh, AUKUS
0: efforts? I echo a lot of what uh, Bola said from a, a general perspective. Nobody could have seen uh, covid but ACCUS does have a very organized approach to addressing healthcare issues. And as we've seen, and as I've seen over the course of the past 10 years since I've been in practice and gotten involved with ACCUS, is a very dynamic healthcare landscape where there's clearly been a lot of changes that have gone on with regards to reimbursements and transitioning from a fee for service payment model to a more of an alternative payment model. And AUKUS has been true leaders in understanding and organizing membership and its leaders into advocating for this. And as Bolo touched on, the organization has really hired excellence, consulting groups, lobbyist groups, and law groups that have helped us to formulate plan and how we tackle uh, health policy changes. Specifically, the annual AUKUS retreats to D.C., I've seen just exceptional changes over the course of the past few years of a really targeted approach where five to six years ago, we as an association showed up to D.C. with a, a general plan, but it's now Relationships have been formed with congressional leaders, and the dialogue is a much more consistent, cohesive dialogue that we have had with policymakers that hopefully continues to evolve with time. And for me personally, I've taken a lot of what I've learned and seen through AUKUS uh, and through the legislative retreats And I've applied it not just to my direct practice and how I structure and organize my vision and goals for my direct team in my office, which includes uh, a nurse, uh, two PAs. But I also apply that to the hospital and how I interact uh, with the hospital in terms of creating a vision for the group and the arthroplasty uh, service line within our hospital. And then I've also applied it to a larger scale, but yet still a regional scale of main state orthopedic societies. So the organization and leadership at AUKUS has just done an excellent job over time to really convey its message and advocate for not only our patients, but for the membership. Thanks, Dr. Rana. And Dr.
2: Huddleston, Dr. Rana mentioned that he is done some of the fly-ins. I know it seems like you talk to some member of the government on an almost daily basis. What are some of the other efforts that go into AUKUS advocating on behalf of our members? The fly-ins, the phone calls, meetings. I know you've been in charge of the advocacy committee and you speak quite frequently to your team. Could you give a little bit of insight into what it means to actually be quote-unquote involved?
1: When I started in this, I didn't really know anything. I said, I want to try to make a bigger difference and solve some of these recurring problems that I'm seeing come into my practice every day and make a difference in the issues that are are facing my colleagues in, in running their practices efficiently. So the most important point that I could convey, and this has been impressed upon me by folks who have had a lot more experience in this arena than I have, and that is the principle that advocacy has to happen all the time if you are confronted with an issue and you want to try to get some help on the legislative side or on the regulatory side and you don't really know anybody and you don't have any personal relationships with your congressional representation you're going to be much less effective than if those relationships are already established so i would recommend that if people are interested in advocacy they have to realize that it has to go on all the time and it it starts at the grassroots level with your local representatives and forming relationships with them. Because once you have that relationship, when they need some help from you, they're going to come and ask you for some help. And vice versa, when you need some help from them, they already know who you are. And so there's no introductions that need to happen. And you're going to be much more effective in advocating for your cause if you already have that relationship. So when folks ask me, you know, how do I get involved and what's involved with this? I would tell you. First point, if you're interested, is go start a relationship with your local representation. Get to know those folks. And that relationship really will be fundamental for not only what you can accomplish at the local level and the state level, but perhaps more importantly, what you can get
2: accomplished at the federal level. Thanks. I think that's a really valuable point. And obviously, some people are going to feel more comfortable being involved with advocacy than others, but we can all start somewhere. And Dr. Shaw, for you, what advice would you give to some individuals who are just trying to get started in advocacy and may not know where to start?
4: Chad, I think the first thing to do is to support the AAOS uh, PAC. You're probably one of the most vocal advocates for the PAC, and it, it comes for good reason. The Political Action Committee of the AAOS is our source of strength, and it funds our consultants in Washington, D.C., and allows us to get the time with politicians and thought leaders in order to achieve our agenda. It's very easy to do. Just Google the AAOS PAC and start donating. I think our last participation rate is around 25%, maybe 20, somewhere between 20 and 30%. And just as a comparison, the trial attorneys, who are not always our friends, Have almost 100% participation because it's essentially part of their membership fee. This is just something where we can make an easy leap forward if everybody listening to this becomes a contributor to the PAC and gets all of their colleagues and partners to participate in the political action committee. And one of the things that the PAC can do is to help you make those connections as boots on the ground. When your politician is having some fundraiser and they have them all the time. Our AAOS PAC, and this is the association, by the way, not the Academy, the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons, our PAC can help pay for your spot at that meeting. You can meet and develop that relationship.
2: Thanks, Roshan. I do think AUKUS is participating at the highest level that the association offers in in the PAC's advisor circle. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of information online that anyone can go out and, and find. I know Josh Kerr working with AUKUS would be happy to help folks as well as any of us on this call. I appreciate everyone's time and talking about these issues. I think we've covered a lot of it and I think our membership would be quite happy. So I'd like to say thank you all very much for your participation. And I look forward to continuing to hear about your efforts in the future and being a part of them myself.
1: Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.